Hi, welcome to Living Water Bible Fellowship's audio sermons. It's our prayer and hope that you'll be encouraged and uplifted by the preaching of God's Word. Stick around after the message to hear more about how to contact us. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> yeah, uh, let me open us up in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we gather tonight on this uh, this day that's uh, been spitting snow all day and just been irritating, but we thank you for uh, the moisture, Lord, and we thank you for providing for our needs again and again and again, and we uh, we give you praise tonight. We ask that you be in our, in our time together with you and with one another in this class tonight. So we look at uh, systematic theology and uh, talking about the canon and the Word of God. We ask for uh, grace to make it uh, understandable and, and applicable to our life, these these lessons, and, and that we would be uh, people of the Word, and we would be people that are walking in your ways, for your glory and for your fame and for your honor. Uh, please, if anybody else is on the road tonight, Lord, please uh, come in here. Please keep them safe and watch over them now. And please take us home safe later as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I over-prepared for tonight, and I'm sure we're not going to get through everything, but uh, you, you might have some questions that you brought to the table too. And so feel free tonight to, uh, if you have things that you want to talk about, uh, let me know and we'll, we'll hit it. But uh, I wanted to start tonight by just uh, helping each other, help us get to know each other a little bit, a little bit more. And this is kind of nice that we have a small group tonight in the sense of, I'd like everybody just to take a moment. Hey, Zach. Just uh, take take a, a moment and uh, did you bring snacks too? Popcorn? I did. Woohoo! Yeah. <clears throat> keeping people awake. Yeah. So uh, let's see here. Um, this opening kind of time, I'd like us just to share a little bit about um, that opening question there. What was the Bible part of your home growing up, and how did your parents, your parents view it or use it, if if at all? And uh, as you, I'd like us all to go around and say that a little bit. And, and when when you answer the question, please say your names, so that the group can know who you are, and we'll gradually get to know one another bit by bit. So, uh, who, was the Bible part of your home growing up, and how did your parents view it or use it? Who's first? Dave? Yeah. Yeah, my name's Dave Epps. And uh, yes, the Bible was absolutely part of my growing up. Uh, my dad was a pastor, and my, my parents were missionaries. So um, absolutely part of my growing up. And I'm <laughs> so thankful for that. They've both gone on, but... Uh, I had wonderful parents. They weren't perfect, but they were wonderful. How, how did they use the Bible in your home? <sighs> I feel like I was in church since nine months before I was born. <laughs> uh, we read, we had devotionals set around, and uh, it seemed like a lot of uh, a lot of church was more New King James and ASB. Uh, in the home, it was like reading the, the living Bible. Okay. Kind of just reading, sitting around. Um, sometimes it wasn't real consistent, 
um, as a family, but we were definitely encouraged to read up on our own. Our dad, dad was, as you know, and many others know that uh, pastors are at church a lot in the evenings. <laughs> so are doing, doing. Uh, so yeah, the Bible is part of your life a lot. It sounds like yeah, going up. Yeah. Thank you. That's Dave and. I'm Colleen. Um, the Bible was part of my home growing up. Uh, uh, on my in my mom's home, um, I grew up in a split home. My dad uh, didn't believe, and so or doesn't believe, and so there wasn't anything on his side. But mom's a believer; it had been made sure we always went to church. Um, I was encouraged and uh, to memorize scripture. I was part of a teen Bible quizzing. Oh. Like what we've got here, mm-hmm. um, was able to go to nationals a couple of times. So I know the importance of memorizing and internalizing scripture, and that was because I was allowed to do that. Okay, thank you very much. Kim Decker, um, I know the Bible was in the home later on when my parents were saved. It was more Bible study involvement and stuff, and with group settings and stuff. I don't remember. It. A lot of family um, Bible studies and stuff in home, but I know there was some. Probably, but it was probably not as regular as it needed to be, but um, so. Okay, thank you, Kim, and hopefully what he says. <laughs> it's kind of come your class with your son. It's like you've been waiting for this for a long time. What's that, <laughs> Carly? Um, my name is Carly, and uh, the Bible was part of my home life. Probably not as much as it should have been. Um, my parents were raised. My mom was raised Catholic, and my dad was raised as a Methodist. Um, so he converted when they got married. Um, but I taught confirmation, was involved in the church um, more I was, as I was an adolescent. Um, but I would definitely say I lost my mom in October. So I would definitely say that that event has brought me a lot more questions and wanting to be involved. But the Bible has, has been a part of my upbringing. Thank you. Okay. I'm Zach Decker. An oldest. <laughs> You're about to hear the truth. No, yeah. <laughs> um, no, when I was growing up, I mean, it was always in our home. Um, we went to youth group. I mean, we were there Sunday morning, Sunday night. Dad was a deacon, so we were there Wednesday nights. We were in youth group. We did choir. We did Christmas, you know, plays. And so we were there a lot. Um, anytime, even now, when I have to make big decisions, my parents are... Well, you need to pray about it first before you make that decision. So that's kind of how it was growing up, too. So it's always there. <laughs> so high, high view of scripture in your house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Tina. Hi, I'm Tina. This is my sister, Gloria. Uh, she's a special need, so she's a little harder to speech. There, uh, so. But uh, we grew up um, mainly through my father's side of the family, which was Italian, which was, of course, uh, Catholic. Um, we did our sacraments as we were told, you know, of course, um, Sunday school, just because we were, mom and them wanted a break on Sunday mornings, that's not necessarily mom and dad went to church, but we went to Sunday classes. Um, but we had Bibles in the home, it was, you know, because it was, the, you know, the thing, but I always remember knowing that even from being a little girl, 
there was always something that told me that this wasn't where God was in the Catholic Church. It was like a connection I had with God, but I never understood it. Um, but I was always shut down okay. from my family if I thought differently. I was, you know. Um, so my, it, yeah, I'm, uh, the the, the Bibles in your home did, were they ever opened or they just uh, not not okay. not like as in a family type of thing. Yeah. You know, my my you know my mom had a Bible, but I don't ever remember her really reading it like in front of us or something. It was more private. Now her mother became like a born again. And then when that started happening, my mom started to change, and she started to pull from the Catholic Church, but we were already getting older. Mm -hmm. And then my brother went off to college, and he was going to be a pastor, actually, but he got into the, like, the seven-day Adventist-type teachings. But we went through a lot of different denominations, and like my, my mom's brother, he went from non-denominational to Mormonism <laughs> to okay. so there was a lot of confusion okay and so there was always mixed doctrine okay in the home. thank you so there's and there's authorities floating around but the Bible wasn't really a, yeah, a big part it was always, of it it was okay for this or maybe it wasn't okay for that but I always kind of always was searching and that's why I guess I was excited okay. about this but I remember going to a friend's church when I was about 12 or 13, it was non-denominational, you know, and I said that was exactly where I needed to be because God was there and it Great. was Bible-based, and I knew then, you know, so mm. makes a big difference. It really does having that Bible opened in the home. It does. Thank you, Tina and Gloria. We're glad you're here, too. Okay. <laughs> All right. Christmas and Easter attenders, Christers, Christers. <laughs> I'm Tom Bradshaw, really almost a ditto. Growing up, there was, you know, we did all the things that were expected of you, and, you know, we would go to church with my grandparents, sort of a thing, but no, it wasn't until after we both got adult age that I was born again at 14 or 15. But it was through a friend relationship, and it wasn't really based from a family relationship, so anyway. Praise God. Yep. All right. Okay, I'm Lynette, and uh, I grew up in a home where my dad was like super involved. And uh, I have memories even later on of getting up early in the morning, he'd be sitting in a chair in the living room reading his Bible. So that was a big, you know, that was who he was kind of thing. Uh, as far as Bible being used in the home. I remember it a lot when I was really young, but I was the oldest of four, and the more kids they had, that kind of went. You know, it was called <laughs> the altar, and you were supposed to 
read through this one magazine that the church had and pray for the missionaries and that kind of thing. So, but that seemed, the next kid was born when I was about six. So it, it seemed to go by the wayside at that point. But there was always like things at, at church and memory and just the right people to be mentors in my life kind of thing that used the Bible. So not so much family as more personal. Okay, appreciate that. My name is Mark Russell. And uh, my parents were both very involved in church. My mother was a church organist. So he grew, grew up being drafted into the choir. Uh, my father was always very involved, was teaching Sunday school. He was a deacon and then an elder. And, um, but in, in the home, a lot of spiritual books, but not, not necessarily the Bible. So books written by Christian authors, and so we were really encouraged to do a lot of reading. Um, I think part of it was this was just the era before the, the newer translations came along. And young kids, sometimes it's hard to understand King James. And, and so this was a way to try to encourage us to, to read spiritual things, uh, kind of the easy things, and, and working our way into more the, the deeper spiritual things of scripture. So that's kind of how I grew up. Thank you. But you became a Christian reading oh. the Good News. Yeah, I became a Christian reading the, the Living Bible or Good News Bible. You know, mm -hmm. It finally made sense. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl Graber. And, um, I think the, the biggest gift my parents gave me was they were the Living Bible. Mm -hmm. they, I saw it lived out. Um, my parents owned and operated a nursing home and people went off on the weekends so it was hard for us to get regularly to church. But uh, my dad always read the Bible before meals and uh, my mom's favorite books were the hymnal and the Bible. Uh, we always went to Bible school in the summer. Um, I. I just, I just felt surrounded by church through family, really. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Don Graber. Um, Dad was a, a good Mennonite and Mom a good missionary growing up, and um, we went to church regularly, and the Bible was important. I remember, I must have had a King James, I can't remember, but I still, I, I know the Christmas story from Luke 2 in King James English, and I know the 23rd Psalm in King James English, so I must have, early on in my life, in grade school, I must have only had a King James, because I can't imagine it. I would have chosen that. Um, but then, uh, I remember Dad, Dad was a physician, he'd be called out at night a lot to deliver babies, and um, he always had a Bible beside his bed. And I got a feeling sometimes he couldn't get back to sleep when he came back from delivering babies or something. But I remember he left it open one time, so I snooped and went over to look to see where he was reading. I don't remember how old I was, and he was gone. And, and he'd written in the margin, Paul was in the know. And I thought that's an interesting thing to say, but, but he had commented in the margin of the Bible. He didn't write much in his Bible, but uh, a, a little bit. But he obviously, he read it, uh, particularly when he, when he couldn't sleep at night. Um, so it, it uh, and Dad would occasionally do devotions with the Bible, but uh, 
I don't remember being taught a whole lot at home. I got I got most of what I got in Sunday school class and you know instruction class at, at church before I, I gave my life to Christ at age 15. So um, my love of the Bible has really happened since I retired from medicine and have lots and lots of time on my hands. It's just it's just come alive in a way it never it never did when I was busy practicing medicine. So that's been the biggest blessing of retirement. Amen. <laughs> my uh, my parents, uh, they my, my dad, uh, when I was born, they were attending a Methodist church in Bismarck, North Dakota. And uh, my dad was a music major in school, and he taught music in, in uh, school. So they got him roped into being the choir director. But he wasn't a believer. <laughs> he wasn't a Christian, but he could sure sing. <laughs> kind of a deal. And then when they got divorced when I was five, that kind of ended all uh, church for us. Um, but I don't remember anything in the home. Uh, I, I remember I got a cross from a Sunday school class that I hung on my, my door. And that was the only Christian ornament in, in either home that I, I lived in. And uh, they never had any Bibles, never had any scripture, never had any anything related to, to the Bible, music, or, or anything that way once, once they got divorced. So uh, uh, didn't, didn't see anything all the way through. I was, uh, the only time I saw anybody that appreciated the Bible was my, my grandma when, I, when I'd stay with her. And she made sure that she'd read it to me. <laughs> she was a believer. Uh, that wasn't until I was a teenager, though. By the time I was a teenager, I was like, Ugh. you know. <laughs> but by the grace of God, uh, uh, he got me after a bit. So thank you for that. And uh, yeah, and uh, please, as you see each other at church, and uh, try, to, try to remember the names. Try to, I, I, I give you a dare this Sunday if you're in church. Try to go up to some of these people and, and recite their names. Okay, see what happens. See what happens. Um, these 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 chapters, of course, are introductory to the whole the whole section that we're in. The schedule you see on the top of your page. We're, we're trying to run through March second, and and as Dave said, I didn't put any snow days in the schedule. So. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how we'll see how things go, and uh, the the people if listening at home, we're we're uh, going to be in chapter four, chapter four of systematic theology by Wayne Grudem next next week. So that's our our, our class schedule for our reading for next week, and we're going to look at chapter four next week in the systematic theology book. For those of you who don't have a book yet, we've got some more on order. Uh, didn't come today, so sorry about that. Um, well, well, we still got some coming, and maybe if you do want to, if you got an Amazon or something, get them here in a few days. Go ahead and order, and we can reimburse you or something. But any way you want to do that is is great. Um, love to have that. So, the Word of God in in chapter two, uh, the Grudem just tells us uh, the different different uh, different uh, types of the Word of God. Uh, is anything in in his list? I've kind of listed his his headings there under the Word of God in your outline. Was there anything there that surprised you or was new to you in terms of the Word of God as a person, the Word of God as speech by God in those different subcategories? Or is that, did, did I, did I'll, those of you, I know some of you haven't read, and so 
Uh, Tina, God's decrees, words of personal address, words of speech through human lips, and God's word in written form. Uh, I thought he gave a pretty good list there. Was there, but no, everybody was comfortable with what he had to say there. That made sense. How he, how he, he did a really good job of, of, of covering every aspect. Um, because sometimes we think about leaving it out, and so putting it all together in one place. I've been taught all of them, just never all at one on one position. I think he did a really good job. Mm. I've never really thought about. Well, I guess I had thought about it, like how these books specifically made it into the Bible, like why these ones and why not other ones. Mm-hmm. I think it was really interesting to see or to read, you know, his explanation as to why these ones were the important ones to make it to the book, and that there were some that were actually didn't didn't make it or shouldn't have made it. Um, so it was just kind of cool to learn. I've, you know, this is the Bible that you've been given, but you never really knew why these were the books that they yeah. were. So it, it was a cool explanation to kind of see it, like she said, all laid out like that. It's excellent. To learn. Yeah, the origins. Who who made up the, who gave us this Bible anyway? <laughs> right? It just fell from heaven. In, in a sense it did, but <laughs> it went through some channels to get to us course so that's thank you for that yeah uh so he he talked about god's decrees uh um that's uh, let, let there be light etc he spoke into the the world and, and it came to be spoke into the darkness came to be uh words of personal address to people uh there's some there's some portions of christianity that make a big deal about words of personal address even to this day and whenever we get talking about those kind of things, we have to make a distinction between what people think they hear from God and, and God's written word, the, the authority. It gets uh, pretty, pretty wild pretty fast. If, if, uh, if what you heard God say to you personally is on the same level as the Bible, you know, that, that gets a little bit dangerous pretty fast and so we and so I th- thought he get, did a good job of ex- explaining why we don't study what God says to people today <laughs> we, we put we, our authority is is based on the written word of God I thought that was he, he did a very good job of explaining that um, wh- what are the benefits so that that question there what are the benefits of God giving us his word in written form as, as you read the chapter uh, the chapter 2 what 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 are the benefits of God giving us His Word in written form? What do you think? Can go, can go back and study it. Yeah. If if God, you know, uh, God spoke to me audibly, you know, with my memory, <laughs> I might be like, oh, I think He said this. I think He said the Bengals are going to win the Super Bowl, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> you know. But so we we have the written deposit. By, by God's grace, the, the Word of God that we can study, go back anytime, we can memorize, we can talk about it together, we have an objective content to look at. So that, that, that's exa- excellent. It's God's revelation. You know, it's, he's helping us understand who He is and what He wants us to be and to do. And, and then not only was the written Word like that, then Jesus was the example of that, Amen. communicating you know, who God is. Amen. It's the same generation to generation. Yeah. The world changes, uh, technology changes, uh, politics, wars. So many things over time change, but from generation to generation, we have the same word. 
even even though we have different translations through history, uh, same word. That that's that's uh, nice. That my great 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 grandfather probably read the same or heard the same word preached that I'm hearing preached. And that, that's 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 neat to have that continuity. I think you can get into kind of dangerous territory without words of personal address, but I felt I felt really blessed in that I had an experience where in my spirit I heard peace, peace, my child. And immediately after that, the Spirit brought to me John 1, 12. To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So in, in essence, it verified for me the message that I really, I mean, I'll never forget that. It was, Amen. It was a very personal dialogue with <laughs> And that, 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 that's good, Cheryl. We need to comment. Can God speak to us personally today? <laughs> he can. And He does. Okay? Uh, how, how do we measure that? How do we measure the, if, it's my, if it's the Spirit, if it's another Spirit? Is it my indigestion? And what you said there is excellent. Uh, marked and, and guarded and, and guided by the Word of God, the written Word of God. So if we ever hear anything that comes to our minds or maybe even an audible voice that is, is telling us something, we always have that benchmark of the written Word of God that we can measure it by. If what we hear contradicts the written Word of God, then we need to be skeptical of what we've heard uh, and, and uh, test it, measure it by the written Word of God. But can, does God, the Holy Spirit is alive in us, this person that uh, has come and to indwell us, uh, certainly there, there can be communication. <laughs> well, how terrible if there, if, if there was no communication ever, if it was impossible. Of course there can be, but uh, uh, the normative uh, source of our authority is the written Word of God. If that makes sense. Very good. Thank you for that, Cheryl. In Jack Taylor's book, um, Prayer, Life's Limitless Reach, he points out that there are two words for the Word of God, and one is the Logos, which is the Bible, the written words of God, and the other is the Rhema, which is that which the Holy Spirit takes a scripture and enlivens it to us according to our need. And um, hmm. I, I mean, I, I've just been so wowed by God. It was a number of years ago, I had a, a partial lung collapse. And with my nursing training, I knew that that could be very dangerous if everything shifted over to the other side and it could be curtains. So that night, I was really not wanting to go to sleep. It, I thought, oh man, you know, what if everything shifts over and I won't wake up in the morning? <laughs> and so I, I was concerned, um, anxious about going to sleep, also concerned about my heart. 
and the Lord brought to my mind Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request, and I will guard your heart and your mind. And I went off to sleep. Peace. I mean, it's just amazing. Why would he pick that verse? Because my mind was stressed, and I was concerned about my heart, and he gave me that verse. Praise God. Yeah, what a gift. Uh, any other benefits that you see from the written word of God? Uh, that uh, uh, giving his, his word in written form? Like it shows that it's important if you're writing it down to preserve it for all the time. Okay. It shows that it's, you know, I'm telling you these things so you can go back and read them, study them, do whatever, but these are things that he obviously wanted us to know and learn about. So writing it down, I think, is important. Amen. Especially when you consider how difficult it was to yeah. preserve and continually writing at that point in history. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like they had a computer that you just type it out. You know, preserving written documents in that point in history had to have been. Excellent. Yeah. That we have a written word is, is incredible. So there was intentionality there on the Father's part to bring us the word. His, his, his wanting to communicate to us his faithfulness in giving us everything we need. Uh, is, there's, there's a whole, whole wonderful praise there, whole history there that's, that's glorious. Um, and, and I think there's, it's already been mentioned a few times, when God gave his people the Bible, what was he expecting? What was he hoping for? What was his purpose? I mean, how, how might you answer that? Evangelism. Evangelism. Yeah, certainly evangelism. He wanted us to communicate to the world about him and call people to faith. To be read. To be read. Yeah, he didn't give us the word for, for just kicks. Woohoo! I'm going to give him the word. He's providing guidance and also truth. Yes, sir. Well, that's the way we get to know him. Yeah, he wanted to be known. He wanted us to live good lives, uh, right lives. I think he was expecting obedience. Obedience, yeah. He, uh... To Duran, show his holiness yeah. and his glory. To show us his holiness, his character, his... Other than us. Yeah, yeah. And that's so important in this crazy world. We need to have a vision of something greater than ourselves. Boy, if, if, if I'm all there is in this world, <laughs> mercy. Right? All, all those are great reasons. Yeah, this for sure. Not a spiritual reason as much, but... History, it seems like people learn to read because of the Word of God. Oh, yeah. You know, and that the fact that we have a literate society today traces oh. back to the Word. That would be I fun. Mean, to that's just a weird We used to read it in school, didn't we? Well, I mean, I'm talking a long time ago. <laughs> well, in a lot yeah. of places, the only people who had access to it were those that could read. So if you wanted access, you had to learn to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just through history and... And it was the missionaries that taught people how to read just so they could read the Word of God. And wow. Yeah. What, what part, that's part in, of in worldwide literacy over the centuries was driven by there's, there's something worth studying. There's something worth reading. Uh, I don't know how that's played out. That would be fascinating to run down that path. Wow. I mean, that's not as much the spiritual, but it's just but, the world we live in today, yeah. how we have benefited from it. For sure. For sure. 
Well, let's move on. If it, well, I should say anything in chapter two that that we that you wanted to talk about that stood out to you, or anything that uh, you had a question about in, in Grudem's chapter two. It was a short chapter. Praise God. <laughs> chapter three was a little bit longer. The canon of Scripture, and uh, I, I I wrote down something there. I, uh, there's different ways that people describe it. The word canon comes from the Greek canon, meaning list, rule, or standard. The canon of Scripture refers to the, collect, the collection of biblical books that Christians accept as uniquely authoritative. Uh, Grudem has a simpler simpler definition. Could somebody read that for me, please? His definition of canon. Yeah, I can remember I that. Yeah, all the books that belong <laughs> in the Bible. So that there's there's so that that means that there's uncanonical books, non-canonical books that maybe are good books that maybe ha- uh, you know like we're talking about the apocrypha tonight. There's some history in the apocrypha that's very helpful and, and very very good. The the Maccabean books. Uh, they're studied uh, all the time for some of their history, their Jewish history. So just, uh, but uh, there's there's books that aren't on that that level of scripture that we we we're getting at in the next three weeks. Um, what what that means? So there's canonical books, the books that we have, the 66 books of the Bible, and there's non-canonical books that aren't a part of the Bible that may very well be good books or insightful, even devotionals, even uh, healthy in some ways, but. They're just not on the level of Scripture. So the canon is what we're talking about, the, the list of the books that belong in the Bible, that God gave us to be authoritative in our life. Um, why is it important to know which books belong in the Bible? <laughs> it's, uh, what, what, what do you think? Or maybe you can remember what Grudem said. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Truth. Truth. If we're gonna if we're gonna give our life to something, uh, if we're gonna if we're gonna build our life on on something, we want it to be true. We want it to be in, in alignment with reality. We don't want it to be off course or some some wacky deal. We you know um, I don't. <laughs> I think the knowing what books you know the extra books thinking of things that have people have tried to add it's they added or it's added to specifically work with whatever doctrine they want as you know itching ears and and doctrines of man they want that doctrine so they find something to support it and knowing what is consistent is important because then we know where to draw the line thank you yeah what is the standard what is what is over the line what is out of bounds yeah we, if we don't have a canon, we don't have uh, books that were authoritative. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to just do a quick uh, little devotional on Deuteronomy 31 and 32. Uh, he, he mentioned it uh, at the begin, some somewhere in chapter 3 there. And just uh, I wanted to just dive into that just a little bit to give you a picture of, um, you know, that, that question of, 
uh, why do we care about the Bible, or why, why is it important to know the Bible? Why do we? Why, why do we? Why is it important to know what books belong in the Bible? So Deuteronomy 31. If you do have a Bible tonight, you could turn there, and uh, could somebody read verses one through eight, please? So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head, as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will... Do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Two more Yes, sir. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to, your, to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. <laughs> How wonderful for Joshua to hear those words. Uh, Moses, uh, when he was about 80, he tried to take the people in the promised land and they rebelled. They said, nope, we're not going in. The giants, they're too big for us. So they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And so Deuteronomy is the, the second attempt. It's, it's leading into the second attempt to go into the land. And so Deuteronomy is a, a reteaching of the law, recapitulation of the law. It's, it's a covenant. The whole book's a covenant kind of document between God at Yahweh and, and, and the people of Israel. And Moses has been teaching them the law for all these chapters in, in, our, in, our, in our chapters, uh, this Deuteronomy. And now he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm the old leader. I'm gone. The new leader's coming to town. His name is Joshua. He's been walking with me for a lot of years. Uh, he, he, Joshua wanted to go into the land 40 years ago, but uh, uh, he, uh, it, they, the people didn't want to go. Now Joshua is ready to lead. So Joshua has been mentored for 40 years <laughs> to, to be a leader, take, it, to, take Israel into the land. Um, uh, but who is the true leader according to this text? God. Yeah, God's going to take you in. God's going to lead you. God's going to overcome all the nations. God's going to do it. And so that's what they lost sight of previously. You know, when they didn't go in the first time, they looked. their eyes were on the giants, not on God. And so he's reiterating again for the new generation, hey, God's going to take you in. Trust Him. Hold on to Him, right? And, and so uh, there's more words to Joshua in, in the book of Joshua there. How about uh, somebody read uh, verses 9 through 13, please? And Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests and the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and unto all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the feast of the tabernacles, when all Israel is come to appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, Thou shalt read this law before all Israel in their hearing. 
Gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe and do all the which do all the words of the law, and that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land, whether you go over their Jordan to possess it. Thank you very much. Every seven years? <laughs> yeah, only. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's 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 a good good point. Uh, we 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 hear in Joshua in the book of Joshua, he's to meditate on the law, like so he has a copy apparently, right? And and maybe there was other copies, but certainly they wanted to put in place every seven years. Uh, the, the, every seven years it was a year of release, a year of forgiving debts. So it was very important that this, these feasts, every seven years, uh, people would, would let go of their debts to their fellow Israelites, and the graciousness of God was, was read about again and again, so it encouraged them to be gracious to one another. Um, but uh, the, 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 uh, the Word of God, the, the law, okay, that it, it's, it's like the summary is the book of Deuteronomy, but it's probably the whole Torah. The, the first five books of the Bible. There's some debate about that, but uh, why, uh, I kind of wrote it out here. Deposited in the ark, the word of God was carried by the Levites into unexplored territory before them. Conveyed in this way by the priest at the head of the marching people, it symbolized the sanctity, authority, priority, and the relevance of God's word for his people. So, hey, you give the law to the Levites, the priest, they're going to put it in the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant, that's an appropriate term. <laughs> the Ten Commandments were, were the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the Old Covenant as we call it. But put, the, put the, this law next to the Ten Commandments. Put it in there. And, and the Ark of the Covenant was carried before uh, armies in battle, right? They carry the Ark up there. It would be their symbol of, of God's presence. And within the ark is God's word. So it symbolized uh, God's authority, the, the head of the nation, the, the understanding of what, how God wanted them to live. He wanted it to be forefront in their life. And so uh, who, who, who was the law read to every seven years? Everybody. The kids, the grandparents, everybody had to hear it. They're, they're, in, a, they're in a nation, they're in a covenant together, together horizontally and vertically with their God, okay? And so everybody, this is how we're supposed to live. This is, this is, this is his word to us. This, this is authoritative. And so a very high view of Scripture, and, and Moses is saying, this is, your, this is how I want you to live. This is how God wants you to, to uh, live in the land. Um, you may learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to possess. So he's basically telling them, if you guys want to thrive in the promised land, keep the law. Here it is. Okay. How about the, the next uh, uh, 31, 19 through 20, 22, please? Somebody read that. Therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, <laughs> they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. Okay. Through 22, please, yeah. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall comfort them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. 
for I know what they are inclined to do, even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. Okay. So uh, God not only gives uh, the prophets like his word, uh, his teachings, his lessons, he, he gave Israel a song. God's a songwriter. And, and this song was meant to be in, incorporated into Scripture until the end of time. And so chapter 32, the song of Moses. Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing. It might be interesting for you to do it. But, but did you hear the, the tenor there, the tone? It's like, I know you guys are going to cheat on me. You know, I'm, I'm your husband, and you're my wife, so to speak. You know, the, 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 the picture there. And I know you're going to leave me. I know you're going to abandon me. And so I'm going to give you this song as a witness against you. <laughs> so when you're ready to repent, you can read this and, and hear my heart again, uh, so to speak. Uh, so uh, I just find it fascinating that, that uh, God gave them the song, a song to put in the Scripture. Because uh, so it was their heart. It's speaking to their heart. You know, they could memorize it, and it would be easy to, to get. And so God, being gracious again, he wanted to communicate. He wanted to be heard. He wanted to be known. And uh, he, he, he condescended to their level by giving them uh, the, the probably many illiterate people um, in Israel at this time, probably many that did, couldn't read any, anything at all, so he gave them a song to, that they could put in their heads and, and memorize. Uh, 32 verses 44 through 47, please. came with Joshua, son of Nun, and recited all the words of this song to the people. When Moses had finished reciting all these words to the people of Israel, he added, Take to heart all the words of warning I have given you today. Pass them on as a command to your children, so they will obey every word of these instructions. These instructions are not empty words, they are your life. Mm -hmm. By obeying them, you will enjoy a long life in the land you will occupy when you cross the Jordan River. <laughs> okay. Uh, how important is the Word of God according to Moses? Pretty darn important. Pretty darn important. <laughs> this is your life. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not a light thing to have the Word of God. It's not something that we take for granted. Uh, and, and so in, in the keeping of this question, why, why, why do we want to know, be sure that we have the right books of the Bible? Because it's our life. Or it could be our life. It could, you know, he's saying, here's how you could prosper. Here's how you can live well in the land. Here's how you could be happy. Obey my law. And, and uh, so he's, uh, take it to heart, personally receive it, command them to your children, faithfully share it, careful to do all the words of the law, obey it. No empty word for you, but your very life. To ignore it would be to miss out on the good life God has planned for them. Um, we, we, why, why worry about if we have the Word of God or not? Because we want to build our life on what's true and what's real. We want to thrive in God's world. We want to obey Him. We want to please Him. We want to love Him uh, by responding appropriately to His Word, not someone else's Word. Uh. So anyway, uh, they, they did. They... they they put that in, in, in the Ark of the Covenant with the song, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, Moses turned over uh, the, the leadership of the nations, nation to Joshua. And from there, they, they begin the process of, of stepping into the promised land. Uh, you can read about that in the book of Joshua. 
but uh, just that that just seeing how important the word is it's it's your very life you know in this world and how many people have never even heard the word of god today I just like like me unless god's grace came into my life i would have never heard the word of god i would have been you know wherever i would have been just drifting through life and living my own way so grateful for the word of god so uh, Grudem moves on. The, the Old Testament canon is, is what he, one of the headings. And that's where that handout I gave you. If you'd uh, maybe look at that chart, uh, this one here. You guys, oh, I'm sorry. Hey, can you throw those back to those guys? I'm slacking up here. Guys, should have thrown something at me. I'm such a punk. <laughs> so this this is a really interesting. I, sorry about my photocopying skills. It's a little bit off, but you know you get what you get. And uh, comparison between the Jewish and Christian canons. Okay, so the Old Testament canon. Um, you see on the left there the the Jewish canon, and there's uh, 22 I think 22 books there, um, divided up into three sections, the Tor- Torah, Nabim, and the Ketubim. Uh, so there's the 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 Torah, the which means instruction or law, the prophets, um, and then the writings or or the Psalms. Uh, sometimes uh, I've got a quote in your outline there from Jesus, the law, the prophet, and the Psalms. And oftentimes they would say it that way because the Psalm was the heading of the of the third section of the Jewish scripture. So it's uh, former pro- in the, under the prophets, the former prophets, and we don't necessarily think in our terminology Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings as prophets. That's how the the Jewish people looked at it in the 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 four books of the latter prophets. So they uh, kind of put them in the summaries or headings there. Um, so you'll notice that the, the, the middle section there, the Protestant canon, there's, there's more books. And uh, do you remember what Grudem said about what the reason is there? Um, we, split we split some of them. Yeah, the, some of them. was one of them. Yeah. Ezra Yeah. So in, in Chronicles and yeah, so there's there's some divisions there um, over the years, and uh, I I can't I'd have to look up again why where that came about, but it's probably because uh, well we'll get into it in a minute, but you know notice the Roman Catholic canon, so there's a lot more books there, and that's where we get the the term apocrypha, if I know like. Uh, uh, in, in, I know some of you haven't read the book, and, and some of you haven't seen the book, but there is a section there that gets into the Apocrypha, the, the hidden literature, the hidden, hidden Word of God. Um, there, there's a history there that we'll get into in a moment. So in, in your Bibles that you have before you, unless you have a Roman Catholic Bible, you have the Protestant canon, 66 books. Of, uh, well, this is the Old Testament. So I think, uh, what, 37 books? Is that... My, my numbers are getting mixed up, but uh, you have the Protestant Old Testament in your Bibles, probably. 
Um, there are some some evangelicals, uh, mainline mainline Christians that have um, the, the Apocrypha as as a separate section in their Bible, but uh, most of you have the Protestant canon. I have a question. Yeah. Um, this says Song of Songs. Is that Song of Solomon? Yes. Did you where the change came or why this? Uh, it, the, even today, there's different Bibles that l title it different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Never seen before. <laughs> so I have a question, John. So the canonization of Scripture, I don't remember what year. Was that more like in the 3400s? Uh, well, uh, that's that's a good question. Um, and then, and then the next question would be: the Roman Catholic included the Apocrypha, but but it's called here. The Protestant can, canon, and so the Protestant was coming out of the Reformation in 1500. So, if the canonization was done in three or four hundred, how does it call it the Protestant that didn't start to 1500? Yeah. So, so was there was was there what was there an official time when when somebody said? This is the Bible. Like some authoritative group said, this is this is the this is the uh, we voted on it, and and the answer is no. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't until 1546 that the Roman Catholic Church said that the official books that we're we're accepting uh, are what we have the list here the Protestant canon and the books called the Apocrypha. It wasn't until 1546 that they said, we, we're saying these books are authoritative officially. So there, uh, there's been some people in history who have said, uh, uh, these are the books that we see as authoritative, but they, they, didn't, they weren't in a position to say, we get the final word. Mm -hmm. So the question is, wh when, did the, when did the canon arrive? When did the canon become generally recognized as being the word of God? Uh, and so that's what we, we have to look at here. Um, so good, good question. And it's uh, so the Jewish arrangement in your in your outline there, the Jewish arrangement of the Old Testament. There's a couple of scriptures there that uh, get into how Jesus saw the Old Testament. So uh, Matthew 23:35. Could somebody read that, please? Matthew 23:35. So upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. True. No, that's, that's fine. Um, so uh, there's two names there. Uh, everybody knows who Abel is. Okay, Cain killed Abel in Genesis. So if you look at the Jewish canon there, the first book of the Bible there in the Jewish canon is Genesis. And then it says, Zechariah the son of Barakai, uh, um, uh, who you murdered. And, and so he, Jesus is referencing something. He's speaking about at the end of Chronicles. The end of Chronicles, that, that's, that's what that reference is to. Okay? So he's saying um, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Does that make sense? 
So he's saying from, from Abel to Zechariah. So Zechariah, the story of Zechariah is found in, in what we call Second Chronicles. Okay. okay. So he's saying, hey, uh, so he's preaching to somebody about <laughs> the, the scribes and the Pharisees, okay? He's saying, man, you guys have always been this way, uh, and, and the prophets are crying out, justice is being from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. <laughs> You've always murdered these, these, these men of God. Okay, but for our purposes, we're seeing that how Jesus viewed the Bible. He's, he's quoting, he's saying, this is the old, this, this from the Torah to the prophets to the writings, He's, he's summarizing all that. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. So, and then Matthew 24, 44. Matthew 24, 44. Uh, well, I, I wrote it there. You can read that if you want. <laughs> so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Let's see. Did I write down the wrong verse? That's 24, 44? Yeah. No, that's not what I wanted. But anyway, uh, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalm, psalms must be fulfilled. I, maybe I put the wrong book. Anyway, uh, trust me, it's in the Bible. <laughs> I'll, I'll, if someone can Google that, maybe we'll get the right reference. Uh, but uh, you see what he's doing there. He, he again, is, is highlighting how the Jews looked at the, the, the Old Testament, the Old, Old Testament canon, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so he's, he's delineating what the Old Testament is. So that, he, that was his view of the Old Testament. Okay? And, and what Grudem is talking about in his, in his arguments is that, that they never quote or they never look at any of the, what we call the Apocrypha. Like if you look at the Roman Testament canon there, uh, there's, there's the Book of Tobit, the Judith, the Wisdom of Ecclesiasticus, uh, Azariah, you know, Bell and the Dragon. Uh, you'll never find anybody in the New Testament quoting from those those books. It's Luke. 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 Yeah. Thank you. Luke. Is it Luke twenty four forty four? Yes. Yeah. I got a question. The Bible is silent from whenever Malachi wrote right? until Jesus appears. John the Baptist appears on scene. So that's four hundred plus years. How much? Did all the apocrypha, a lot of the apocrypha, fill in that four hundred years? I, yes. Some of it did, didn't it? Yes. That that's that's excellent and. Let's see. If you if you turn over your if you look on the next page of your outline, uh, I'll give you a quick expl explanation of where it says why does the Roman Catholic Old Testament have more books than the Protestants? It includes most of the Apocrypha. So in that paragraph, it kind of describes um, during this period between the con completion of the Old Testament and the first writings included in the New Testament. Um, you know, 400 plus years, many essays, psalms, and historical accounts circulated throughout the synagogues in the early churches. Some of these documents gradually came to be regarded by certain of the believers as actually inspired and deserving a place in the canon. We usually date the first definite listing of the accepted books of the Bible as occurring about around 367 A.D. So maybe, Dave, that's, maybe you saw that date somewhere. There was, a, there was a group that came out and they, they said, we believe these are the books of the Bible, um, etc. However, and there's other places in history, some of them mentioned by Grudem. However, a second set of booklets had been assembled through the years, and these were given the name Apocrypha, meaning hidden. Though they are all from the time before the birth of Christ, they were never included in the Hebrew Bible. 
Okay, and so and so there was a bunch of documents in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the intertestamental period, that there's a lot of writings that went out. And and again, some of these writings were valuable, some were important, but the important point Grudem makes is that the Jewish people never saw them as scripture. The Hebrew people never saw raised them to the elevate elevate them to the level of scripture. Some of them weren't even uh, written in Hebrew. Um, many of them are written in Greek, because that became the, the language, the, the trade language of the day, and, and a lot of Jewish people didn't even know uh, Hebrew or Aramaic anymore. Um, so that's, that's kind of uh, getting at what you're saying there, Don. Thank you. I didn't know that. Yeah. So there's all kinds of literature, and, and some, some groups said, hey, this seems to be very important. But the, but the Jewish people never saw these books as, as elevated the same as the... The, the, the Torah, uh, the prophets, and the writings, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. But the Jewish people are really good at documenting their history. Yes. And so that period is, is documented. It just wasn't part of the canon. The other thing that yes, sir. didn't mention, but I've learned elsewhere, is that our organization of the Old Testament is not chronological. Yes. <laughs> and so like the prophets are, are grouped by the big ones or the long ones and then all the little ones. That's right. Um, and Esther was the last book written in the Old Testament. That's right. Hmm. Yep. I found it fascinating that between those two lists, Esther was on some and not on others. Yeah. Um, well, go ahead. doesn't mention the word God. So it's questionable in some people's minds, yeah. right? There's some debate about it. I mean, just read that. Yeah. Just, I mean, I just read Book of Esther, and then, yeah. and then I read some, uh, Bible Project is really good on explaining that. Um, if you know what the Bible Project is. I've heard of it. Tim but... um, Mackey. You can go on YouTube and go Bible Project, and they, they tell you about that. Yeah. It's really interesting. Oh. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, the last historical book was Esther, and yeah, the chronology of when they were written. So that that's a fun that's a fun uh, kind of a uh, exercise, and like uh, canon canonically, the flow of history, which books fall in place where, um, and that we might that might be fun to do in a in a future class. Um, why is the Christian Old Testament ordered differently? So we got the Jewish canon there, and then the, the Protestant canon. And what happened to the order? Why didn't we keep the old order? Why did we keep the old the old divisions? And so I, I uh, wrote it out there a little bit. The Christian organization, what, what I'm calling the Christian organization, the, the Protestant canon, and, and to a degree the Roman Catholic canon, was based upon a popular Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint. Okay. Uh, and so the, the Septuagint was a translation of the Hebrew, many Hebrew documents, uh, many that we say are, are scripture and, and some that we say are not scripture. <laughs> and and uh, the, there's, there's a lot there, uh, you know, like I said earlier, that the Jews never ex accepted some of these books as scripture, but some of these books were included in this Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures and other books, okay? And the important thing is that the in, in the intertestamental period, because of, uh, there, there's a lot of factors in, in play, but a, a great number of Jewish people couldn't read Hebrew anymore. 
and, and they, they kind of were planted in that part of the world, and that part of the world, and that part of the world. And even in Israel, some of the Jewish people couldn't read Hebrew anymore for various reasons, partly um, because of the conquests that were involved. They were, they were an oppressed people. You know, uh, for, for in Jesus' day, the Romans were in control of the nation, etc. And before that, many other nations. So, uh, the, the Septuagint was necessary to bring the Word of God. It, it was a translation that brought the Word of God to Jewish people, and a lot of Greek, pagan, uh, um, non-Jewish people read it as well. And the quote here, the Septuagint is quite possibly the most important translation of the Bible uh, in, that's ever been. It's the oldest translation of the Old Testament into another language. Hebrew ceased to be spoken language as early as the exilic or post-exilic period, and the Aramaic became the lingua franca of the Jewish people. With the rise of Alexander the Great and the Greek empires, the Jews in the diaspora were Hellenized, meaning they took on Greek ideals and Greek language and Greek principles. So they, they, started, they stopped being so Jewish in their way of living, and they, they became Hellenized, Greek thinking, and they, they prided themselves in their Greek dress or their Greek culture. But for some Jews, especially those living in Ptolemaic Egypt, Greek became the primary language. Thus it became necessary for the scriptures to be translated into Greek. And so what, what happened was, um, as time went on, that Septuagint became very important. And so that the, the way that the Septuagint laid out the Bible, it was copied. <laughs> okay, that translation became very influential. And for whatever reason, they put the books in that order that we now have in our Bible. So we kind of borrowed that, that order. And I think that the length of the books in their mind mattered, you know, rather than the chronology so much. And so that's it's fa pretty fascinating part of history there. Why is our book Bible in the order it is? Well, <laughs> it just, yeah. That's, that's, that's an explanation of that. What exactly is lingua? Is that first language, lingua franca? What's that mean? Uh, the, the, yeah, I think the trade language or the, 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 the big language is spoken that everybody can speak. Is that, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, God used the Greek language to be so commonplace so that when Jesus was, was born, this was something that could be communicated across all these cultures. Amen. It was a common language. Amen. Yeah. That and the Roman roads. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's all a coincidence. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. God, God's providence through history set, set up the world to receive the word of God and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ through those coincidences. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, pretty awesome to think about. Um, so, um, continuing on with this idea of the Apocrypha, you know, it, uh, that in, in the, kind of the third page of your outline, even though the organization in the second, third paragraph down, even though the organization of the Christian Bible is based on the organization of the Septuagint, our Bible doesn't contain all the Old Testament books contained in the Septuagint. <laughs> in other words, the early Christians were willing to use the Septuagint as a helpful translation. They wanted the Word of God in Greek, but they did not agree with the Septuagint as to which books should be in the authoritative canon of the Word of God. <sighs> um, but how it played out, some early translations, along with Septuagint, kept the Apocrypha, kept these, these, these books that weren't part of the original Hebrew accepted list. 
The Jews never accepted it. Grudem says that the Latin Vulgate translation became very influential. As the Vulgate became the new Bible of the church, the Apocrypha was regarded as part of the canonical scripture. But he says it was not until what year? <laughs> yeah, 15 something. 1546. Yeah. That the Roman Catholic Church officially declared the Apocrypha as part of the canon. Why? Why? What was going on then? Why? Why? Reformation. The Reformation was happening. And Martin Luther and some of the other reformers were pushing again, back against some of the doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church held. And where do you think some of those doctrines came from? The Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. Can you think of one of the doctrines? That was popular in the Apocrypha? Praying. Purgatory. Penance. Yeah, these kind of things. These, there's, some, there's some references in these books that really support some of these doctrines that Lutheran said, show me where it's at in the Bible. Or Luther said, show me where it's at in the Bible. And, and they said, well, it's in, it's in these books. And well, we don't, think, we don't think that these books are authoritative. And the Roman Catholic Church says, well, they are now. <laughs> yeah, so they, they had a, a church council and they, they, they said, yeah. So over the centuries, they had used the, these books, the Roman Catholic Church, but they never had raised them to the level of authoritative with the rest of the written scriptures until 1546. And the Reformation really uh, pushed that. It, it really is. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that uh, if that was a cultural thing that developed over the centuries, uh, borrowed from the culture, or if there was a direct reference in one of these books. Great question. Great question. The Catholics have never questioned the Apocrypha over the years, huh? Uh, you know, Catholic. When you say the Roman, the Roman Catholic Church is such a huge organization, and within the Roman Catholics, there's conservative wings and liberal wings. Mm -hmm. And I, I think probably, uh, so it's hard for to say they've never, there might be a certain wing that has, but uh, even from the 5th century, uh, they started to build. It's still in their Bible? Yes, yeah, the Apocrypha is still in their, still Bible. their Bible. Absolutely. Yeah, I have, it. I have a Catholic edition, and it's, they're most definitely in here. Yeah. Is, is it listed as a whole separate section? No. That's or they're, they're mixed, you, yeah. Is it normally listed as a separate section? My Bible's a mess, I'm sorry. No, no it's fine. Um, no, yeah, so it's got just, it's pretty much exactly our list here. Yeah. Of, isn't it? I think so. Almost, yeah, First and Second Maccabees. Yeah, so what you, what she, her, her Bible that she has, some of the Roman Catholic, the New Revised Standard Version, okay, Catholic edition, there's a Protestant edition too. Uh, you see maybe in the Methodist Church or maybe it's the Anglican Church, I'm not sure. Um, but, but this one has, yeah, it's not separate at all. They're just within those sections. Pentateuch, history, wisdom and poetry, prophecy. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. Grudem's saying here that if the early church, under the direction of the apostles, preserved the book as part of Scripture, that it belongs in the canon. So, he's talking about there before Constantine, before, I mean, this is the Apostles' time, right? Well, we're talking, when we get to the Apostles, we're talking New Testament canon. Okay, that's where I'm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, good, well, yeah, we'll get to that. Good question. Uh, he's, yeah, he's talking about divine 
authorship. Um, the importance yeah. of that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's really, that really caught my attention. The divine authorship and the apostles and then the fact that they were... These guys didn't have Facebook. They didn't have... I mean, <laughs> these guys spent unbelievable amount of time to figure out what the Apocrypha said, what the Word of God says. I mean, I, I was just blown away by how much they knew the different books. They were just... Yeah. I mean, they didn't, this is like they didn't have anything to do but read. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. But they, they really knew the Word of God. They did. What a... What a, what a yeah, convicting thought. <laughs> Interesting yeah, side yeah. note, um, the Roman Catholic in 1546, 65 years later, King James put forth his declaration for the English Bible. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. King James Version was commissioned in 1611, mm -hmm. 65 years after. Mm -hmm. Boy, that'd be a fun history to, that, to that read just, about. It just hit me when I was looking at those days going, those are really pretty close together. Yeah, the currents of... of so the Council of Trent came in 15... 15, middle 1500s, and then what happened in those those next 60 years to bring about the King James Version? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the, the Gutenberg's printing press was in that same time too, right? Radical changes. Yeah. Radical times. Uh, Grudem's argument against seeing the Apocrypha, Apocrypha as sacred scripture, what, have it, what are his four main points? And uh, let's, I guess, uh, just for those at home, let me give you the page number. 40, yeah, 47. So, Groom's argument against the Apocrypha as sacred scripture. Uh, and the, sec the second paragraph on page 47. Let's uh, just list those off. They do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. So they don't say that the word of God. I think that's a way to summarize it. Uh, they are not number two. They are not regarded as God's words by the Jewish people from whom they they originated. <clears throat> so why why aren't they sacred scriptures? They they weren't regarded as God's words by the Jewish people. Number three, they were not considered to be scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors. And. Uh, well, how do we know that um, from Grudem's book? Because they didn't do what with the Apocrypha? They never quoted it. Yeah, of the 295 or so quotations in the New Testament from the Old Testament, there's never a quotation from what we call the Apocrypha. Okay, and number four, they contain teachings inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. So, uh, yeah, God's Word... It's not going to contradict itself. So those those are the four. And there's you know other you can like in the back of the book the the list of other books. If you want to dive in farther to this, there's there's more more arguments for sure there. But let's talk in the remaining minutes. Let's talk about the New Testament canon. Which group of people wrote most of the New Testament? Apostles. What made them write, capable of writing scripture? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, they were designated apostles. The Spirit filled them. And, and from, from John chapter 14 through 16, there's a lot of promises there that are for the wider church, but definitely for the, for the apostles. The, the Spirit will come. 
The Spirit will give you the words. The Spirit will teach you. And so uh, we believe that that really happened, that Jesus' teachings that he gave to the apostles directly, uh, however long he walked with them, those two or three years, uh, after Jesus died and rose from the dead, uh, the Spirit brought uh, to their minds Jesus' words. So it was an inspired work. It was a uh, carefully preserved work, Jesus' teachings. The, the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus gave them the authority as, as disciples, as apostles, the Holy Spirit uh, brought the word to reality through insp- the process of inspiration, which we'll look at in, pre- in coming weeks. Uh, let's, uh, j- there's a few books that were not written by the apostles. Um, do you remember which ones offhand? Mark, Luke, Acts, Hebrews, Jude, and James. Well, he's questionable. Yeah. But he's the brother of Jesus. So. He's in the family. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, uh, what combination of factors allowed the early church to recognize which of these non-apostolic books were Scripture? And that's on, on page 51. I really like that little list he's got. The last paragraph on page 51. What combination of factors allowed the early church to recognize which non-apostolic books were scriptural? They were written at the same times of the apostles, and they were endorsed by the apostles. Okay, they they were within the apostles' lifetime. Okay, so it was not three generations later or 30 generations later. They They were able to be verified by... And Mark was actually the first gospel that was written. Yes. And, and Mark, who, who is Mark's uh, big mentor? Peter. Peter. <laughs> so Mark's first-hand source was the Apostle Peter. Okay. And Luke in, in Acts, who, who really uh, kind of checked uh, Dr. Luke? Paul. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was, uh, was tied to Luke pretty well. Okay. Um, so that, that list there, it says... Apostolic endorsement, so the apostles could say, "Yeah, this." They, they could tell people, "Is this book important?" Yeah, it is. Okay, so that's one of the one of the criteria. Consistency with the rest of Scripture, as the books were sent out, as the letters were sent out, as they made their rotations around the, the Christendom. Uh, you know, the, the the church would would read these books, and certain books would rise to a higher level, but none of them made it to the level of Scripture unless they were consistent with with the rest of the scripture. So that's the second point. The perception of the writing is God breathed on the part of an overwhelming majority of believers. Now this one's really fascinating. So uh, in the course of uh, Paul sending out letters to Laodicea, to Colossae, they would make the rounds, okay? And over over the course of time, um, there, there would be this, this, this grasping of reality that these are God's words. They're, they're a self-attesting kind of deal. Now, the apostle, if Apostle wrote it, that was a mark already. But some of the books that weren't written by the Apostle, um, th- there would be this, this kind of divine separation where people realized it was the Word of God, is, is what he's saying there. The overwhelming majority of believers would say, and so there's some of the questionable books, like James, you know, that some people struggle with that, there was some wrestling going on, like, boy, is this one because he says this, and does that contradict Paul? 
so there's a time of wrestling for some of these books, but o over the decades, certain books rose to the surface while others didn't, is, is kind of his point there. Um, yeah, so, so th those, those are some good lists. I hate it when I get to the end of here and I'm kind of rushing, sorry. Uh, any, any questions so far? before he was receiving some of the inspiration yeah. for the, the letters that have been preserved. Yeah, we, we think there was four letters to the Corinthian church, but we only have two. Well, they just got lost. Maybe God took care of that. Yeah, maybe God took care of it. He, they obviously, by God's faithfulness and his providence, he didn't want those letters in the canon, mm -hmm. is what we believe. But yeah, you're right. So not, not, and I think there's a footnote there somewhere like, when, when Paul did his grocery list, was that inspired? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, uh, pretty, pretty fascinating stuff there. I mind also that those, those letters were carried and then copied. And carried and copied. So as more and more were... That might be why there's limitations. It's just because of the physical, physical nature. How much scripture could there be? There yeah. could be a lot, you know? I mean, but the practicalities the of... Because isn't there a scripture about there not being enough ink for all the in words John? Yeah, yeah. You know, and so physically carrying the the, the scrolls that contained just the letters we have, yeah, would have been a chore. A massive and undertaking. Then taking them, it would have taken weeks to copy those letters. Absolutely, the world had never seen this before. And so. Yes, there were roads, and, and there was a common language, and so there wasn't having to be translation and things. But just the physical properties limits us to what could have been recorded. Thank you. Yep. Uh, pretty. Uh, the reasons... Like the way, yeah, go ahead. I really like the way Grudem puts it, that God preserved what he wanted, what he needed to preserve in his divine power. Like, that's just, like, the Bible I've heard has been the most sought-after book in history to be destroyed. And God has preserved it mm -hmm. over and over, and he's preserved enough. We have enough to understand, what, what does he say? Uh, God wants us to know the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, and the meaning for the lives of believers for all time. Since this, God is God's greatest revelation for mankind no more is to be expected once this is complete. Amen. And I think, wow, he preserved it. Uh, so the, the preservation of the scriptures is, is part of the bigger plan of redemption. Mm -hmm. His whole redemptive plan from the beginning to the end uh, to save us, that means that he, part of his redemptive uh, work in the world is preserving the word, the written word of God so we could hear the word of God and be preached to and be saved through the word of God. So that his work, his, his work of sending out prophets, his work of sending Jesus, his work of, of doing all that, it's, that's a redemptive purpose just as preserving the scriptures, uh, giving us the scriptures and then preserving them through all the attacks. That's God's faithfulness and preservation as well. It's uh yeah. Pretty amazing miracle. It's it, it, God. Yeah, this is this is a miracle that we have this book, mm -hmm. and it's the grace of God that we have this book. Absolutely. Um, there's some some questions there, and uh, 
What reasons would we give to, give to say the New Testament canon is closed? That's if you are doing some study. I want to get people on the road before it gets too late <laughs> with the snow. Uh, it's on the page 52. How do we know that our canon has the right books? And we've talked a little bit about that. The New Testament canon, page 53 and 54. Uh, how, how did the early church recognize which books were authoritative, authoritative and, and which were not? And so that's tied, uh, that I think what Dave was getting at earlier, the, uh, the ultimate criterion of canicity is blank, blank, not human ecclesiastical approval. Divine authorship. You're blank there if you got an outline. The ultimate criteria, criterion of, of canicity is divine authorship. Uh, not because some church group said it was the Word of God. And that's, uh, you can read about that on page 56, what, that, what, that, what he's getting at there. Uh, thank you for those of you who couldn't come tonight. Uh, I hope this recording works. Uh, thank you those, for those of you who came tonight on a snowy night. And uh, let's uh, give God praise by singing. <laughs> and uh, Don was uh, so brave last time in leading us out. Uh, on page 61, there's a, a worship song, uh, I Exalt Thee. Uh, anybody recognize that one? Just a chorus, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, let's... Uh, <clears throat> For thou, O Lord. Okay, someone get the pace. I, I'm terrible at that. Come on. Who's got it? I exalt thee. I exalt thee. I exalt thee. call it quits there <laughs> but, but see I'm going to keep doing this every week until we get a musician in here that can lead us uh, it's going to happen I'm sure but uh, uh, Lord God Almighty we turn over this night to you we, we ask that uh, as we now we get into uh, some of the questions of authority and some of the questions of reliability and and uh, of clarity Lord God we, we ask in the coming weeks as we study further you give us grace to, to uh, uh, trust the authority of the Word of God, that you help us understand what that means, that you understand what it means for our lives, that we can study it, etc., etc. Please, as we study this section, it's gonna, we know it's going to set us up for the rest of the, the doctrines we're going to look at. So give us grace to understand what, what the written Word of God is and what you've done, this miracle of bringing it to us, the process of inspiration. Lord, we, we uh, thank you for your infallible word. We ask that you give us the, uh, the grace to, to understand it, the grace to, uh, to live it, and to you be all the glory and honor and praise. Love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. The gospel according to the Bible is that Jesus Christ, who was and is the eternal God, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, 
died for our sins on the cross, and rose from the dead three days later. He then ascended to the Father's right hand, where he sits making intercession for his people, and right now he is establishing the kingdom of God on earth. You can enter into a saving relationship with God by repenting of your sins and placing your full trust in Jesus' life, his death and resurrection on your behalf. In Christ, you will find forgiveness, acceptance, freedom, peace, hope, and a future. If you would like more information about Christianity or Living Water Bible Fellowship, visit our website at livingwateralamosa.org. God bless.